This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the 22nd Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university, and we have with us tonight Shauna Nequist, who has written several books, Cold Tangerines, Bittersweet, Savor, Bread and Wine, Present Over Perfect. Uh, she's also a very, very popular blogger, very big presence on social media. Uh, her most recent book, Present Over Perfect, has created dozens of community groups throughout the United States and, and beyond, just around the ideas in that book and some of the ideas for eating that come along with uh, some of her, uh, her other books as well. It is literally true to say that Shauna Nequist's books bring people together physically. Shauna Nequist, welcome to our Writers' Symposium. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so if I had to pick two themes uh, from, your, uh, from your books, I would say you like to write about food, obviously, and, uh, and you like to write about the power of words. Uh, but there's other stuff in there, too. It's, it's about family, and it's about friends, and it's about loving others. But usually, somehow in there, you circle back to food and writing in there. Is that, is that accurate? I, I, I think that's absolutely accurate. Um, I am a tremendously hungry person, and I love to read. And so I would say I... Um, if I had to say, not just in my professional life, but in my life, I really care about what happens around the table, and I'm a totally insatiable bookworm. And so words and food feel really central to how I experience all of life. Well, one of the things I thought was, on, on the one hand, it, was, it started to amuse me after I noticed this, that whenever you tell a story or, or give an anecdote, anything in your books, you also tell us what they were eating at yeah. the time. Uh, I did at one, uh, and I forget exactly which project we were working on, but one of my editors came back and was like, I, I love how you're, you're really painting like a picture for me of exactly what you were experiencing. I do not need to know every single thing about your salad. Like just, to, <laughs> just you could tell me we were having a meal, or, but I think it was like, and then I ate a bite of the Greenwell salad that reminded me of this because I had this like maple tang, but there's a kind of like balsamic thing happening. And he was like, tell me what's happening after you eat the salad. So I like those details. Yeah. Um, and some of it is, I think um, good writing has a lot of texture in it. So I like to know in the books that I, that I love most, I want to know what did, what did you eat and what did you wear and how did your shoes feel and how did her voice sound in that conversation? So to me, it's the details that make you feel connected to a story. And I think I tend to also most of the details in the way my mind works are through food. Well, but, but what's so cool about the food piece of it is when you're describing things or describing um, uh, conversations you're having with friends or family or whatever, the, the food preparation is, is also the ongoing action. So there's a real tactile, 
kind of nature to what you're writing about. You're chopping vegetables. You're smelling the garlic. Um, You're checking to see if the soup is the right temperature. So all of that is going on, which, of course, just involves the reader's senses while you're doing that. But I also just got the sense of, in real life, I'm guessing you really like the chopping of the vegetables and all. Some of it is, I I think one of the things that I struggled with in the early seasons of being a writer was the writers that I knew were such... um, they were brain people. They were they were thinky, um, idea-y, abstracty people. And I'm I'm just not. I'm I'm really tactile, and I like what happens in the actual world, in the blood and guts and dirt of things. And so it was really important to me, especially in my earlier seasons of writing, to make sure that the the writing was always an invitation to life on the ground, not an escape into our minds. Because I think I found that a lot of what I was reading and experiencing, particularly from a faith standpoint, was very much about correct belief, not necessarily about engagement in the world in a tactile, sense-oriented way. I remember telling um, someone like, I, listen, I know you love going to a, a, a seminary library. Do you know what feels like a holy space to me is the farmer's market? Because God made all of those things too. In the same way that God created these beautiful, esoteric, important ideas. He also made berries and radishes and the smell of lavender. And and I feel a similar connection to holiness when I'm in those spaces. Well, and, and there's a great line in one of your books where you said that you discovered the healing power of barbecue. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know it had that. So is that just some sort of voodoo thing you came up with or, or, or what? I think, um, I think most people are starved to be seen and heard and known, especially when they're in seasons of pain. I think pain is particularly isolating, right? I think when you're happy, you think everybody's happy, right? When you get an engagement ring, you're like, look, diamonds everywhere. Um, When you're suffering, you genuinely think you're the only one who's ever felt these things. And so when I talked about the healing effects of a barbecue, I had been in in a really... Uh, a really painful season in my life, and I isolated so completely. The pain felt so lonely to me, and I made it lonelier by pulling away from people. And then uh, I sort of got, not tricked, but encouraged into hosting this barbecue and being with people and letting them see me, even in my pain, even in my heartache, was so healing to me. And so I hold that experience in my mind as like a... The impulse to hide when you're suffering is so prevalent, but what can happen around a table or in a backyard or anywhere that we let ourselves be seen, even in the midst of our heartache, is really healing. Well, you're, you're, you're one of the few people I've ever read who makes cooking look interesting and deep. And <laughs> maybe I just don't read enough on that, in that genre, but, um, but you... You, you do. You just make just the, the actual preparation of a meal, getting people around a table is actually, you make it seem like a profound thing. Well, I would say there are so many food writers who do it better than I do. I think um, Ruth Reichel, especially, I think is our best living food writer. I think she's incredible. But also, the, you know, there are so many um, 
who's the woman who has um, the restaurant called Prune, Gabrielle Hamilton, her book, Blood, Bones, and Butter, is phenomenal. And the way she writes about food is absolutely spectacular. MFK Fisher, obviously. So there's a whole very beautiful swath of food writing that I love. But, you know, the other thing is, for me, I like food. Um, My love for food and my love for storytelling both are are a function of hospitality. Hmm. I want to create space for people to feel seen and known. I want to, everything I do, I want to be a hand holding out that says you're not alone and you're not crazy. And so we do that when we invite people around our tables. And we do it when we tell stories that help people feel less alone. And so I think my vocation in the deepest sense is to practice hospitality. Well, okay, so because it connects what you just said with uh, the other piece of, of preparing a meal, you make it seem like a creative act. It, 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 and, um, and that's kind of what's behind it. I, you know, it's not like I don't cook. I, I, I do, but I can do one thing well. What, what's your one thing? My one thing is I can make an omelet. But here's, here's what I do. It's not easy. An omelet is a thing. Thank you. Yeah. So, so, but what I do is I just look in the refrigerator and say, what's in there? And, and just put that in the omelet. So that's my let there be moment, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's, that's about as creative as I get. Yeah. But you make it sound like this is a, actually a creative act similar to writing. Yeah, I, I would say for me it absolutely is. And, you know, I tend to think there are cooks and there are bakers. And bakers tend to be the people who are good at math and measuring. Um, and then cooks tend to be the ones that set things on fire and sometimes it's terrible, but every once in a while it's brilliant. And I'm definitely in that second category. Like my mom has to leave the kitchen when I'm cooking. Cause she's like, what do you, what do you, uh, do you not, you're just picking things up and putting them in. You're just, I want, <laughs> I think I'll go in the other room for a while. And it makes sense yeah. to me. I, you know, I have a plan, but it's, it doesn't always look like a plan and it makes her very nervous. Well, so let's go back to it, the, the, the hospitality part, because you say that food is actually the language of care. So when, when words fail us, there's something about passing around a bowl of something and breaking bread. And, uh, and, and, and again, I love the, the sensory inclusion that you, the clinking of the fork on the, on the plate. It's, there, that is saying something similar to we care about each other. Anytime you see that kind of going around and, and, and you hear that. So is that a, um, I mean, can you create that kind of an atmosphere around a table or do you just kind of hope it happens? I think there's a lot of things you can do to set the stage for it to happen. You can contribute to it or you can contribute to something different than that. So um, for me, I think a lot of it is about, it, uh, it's more about the people than it is about the technicality of the food. I'm never cooking seven-course dinners. We have a lot of soup. Um, I don't bake, so we have a lot of ice cream. You know, when people come, but this is the thing. I think um, we're in a. This is fading a little bit now. I think home cooking is having a moment, and I'm thrilled. But I think for a while, ten years ago, maybe it felt like I have to have a culinary degree. I have to have one of everything from William Sonoma, and I have to do it at the Martha Stewart level. Or why even have people over, right? And I think some of what I wanted to say and what I wanted to create, especially in bread and wine, was it's not, this is not cooking as performance art. 
Right. This is feeding people in really simple, humble, daily ways. And frankly, like we, we talk about, we in our home, we try not to use the word guest or entertaining. A guest is an outsider coming inside. So we talk about gathering our family around the table. And if you're sitting at our table, you're our family. Mm. Guest is like mom's mad, kids are messy, guests are coming. We try not to use company either. Don't say company's coming because your kids automatically know you're going to be in a terrible mood. Um, And like entertaining. Entertaining is like tap dancing. Entertaining is a variety show. (laughs) I'm not performing for you. I'm inviting you into the family space of our home, and I'm creating space for you to be seen and known and fed in that place. To do a fundamentally important thing, which is to feed one another. Mm-hmm. So, I, and then, and then I, I love the the elements: uh, heat, knife, sizzle. There's there's just something so raw and and elemental about that. That um, so you're doing something that we all need. Mm-hmm. Right? But you're actually doing it, you're trying to do it in, in some sort of a culture of love. Yes, absolutely. All right, so I got your books. You got it. Right? You yeah. got it. Okay, all right, all right, all right. But here's the other thing about the, the table. I, there's a line in one of your books where you say, we don't come to the table to fight and defend. Uh, we come to the table because our hunger brings us there. So that's, there's, some, there's some big metaphors going on in there, too. You know, I think one of the things that a lot of people, I'm certainly not the only one to say it, I'm hearing a lot of people saying it right now, is that we're willing to say things from the anonymity of our phones or our laptops that we would never in a million years say to someone with whom we shared a table. And so I think, uh, and someone else said this, I think um, he's a pastor in New York, and he said something like, the reason we can um, interact better with our neighbors in real life than we can online is because even if you disagree, let's say politically, let's say. um, It could happen. Theoretically, (laughs) with your neighbors in real life, that fact is mitigated by the fact that you watch each other's dogs and give each other cups of sugar, right? So that neighborliness mitigates those hard facts that separate you. It's hard to troll the person who's right across the Who table. Who gave you from, sugar, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And exactly. so I think that's the, the table represents seeing people face to face. And, and when, you, when you're, you both come to be fed, one's not better than the other, you both come with a need, um, it, it's easier to see the fullness of humanity in another person when you're watching them eat soup than it is when they're a nameless, faceless person on the internet with whom you disagree. And so I think a lot of life is just continuing to get people around tables in all sorts of ways. Just getting us all face-to-face with one another mm-hmm. to be in the same room and eat together. So this brings us to your most recent book, Present Over Perfect. And so everything that I noticed about your previous books, here's what so-and-so was eating while we did this, here's what we ordered when we were at the beach, and, and here's the picnic that I brought, there aren't very many references to food in Present Over Perfect. This is a completely different book. It's a different tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you've got a different purpose going on. Um, it's a, that's a book about getting your life back. Mm-hmm. Yes. So w- what happened that made it so that you didn't have your life? Well, so, you know, when I first started sending out the book uh, to a couple friends, they were like, oh, oh, this is different. 
It when, was different. Yeah, but when you're in it, you don't totally know what they mean by that. And I'm like, what do you mean it's different? And I like, um, there's not as many uh, food references. It's not funny almost at all, right? Some of the other books, I have moments of being funny. This is this book's like jokes over, guys. Um, <laughs> But that's how it felt in my life. It wasn't a particularly funny season of my life. Um, and essentially, I think what happened is, um, you know, we all have different narratives or wounds or guiding ideas that shape our choices. And I found myself in my mid to late 30s absolutely exhausted very isolated, and really far from this like vibrant, creative, silly, spontaneous person I believed I was and that I wanted to be. And so I went through a deep discovery process, hmm. counseling, silence, spiritual direction, asking for help, calling mentors, just as many things as I could think. Any, I took every offer I could just to help me sort this out. And what I realized was I had believed the lie that you are what you do. And I would never have told you that I believed that, but when you look at what I had done with my life and my schedule, I believed that if you do more, you are more. And it led me down a path that ended up being really exhausting and really isolating. And, and you have said that the writing of this book transformed you. Not, it, it wasn't that you went... You had the transformation, then you look back and wrote about it. This is what fascinates me about this book, is it was the actual writing of it that was transformational. Why? Why? Well, Explain that. Many years ago, before I started Cold Tangerines, someone told me, and I wish I could remember who told me this, but they said, when you're de- deciding on a book topic, don't pick what you think will get you on Oprah, where there's an obvious hole in the market, where you might capture the niche. What, what You don't think about that stuff at all. You think, what topic would I like to think about, write about, dream about, talk about for about two years of my life? Like, you have to really care about this for a long time, not just the writing, right? If you get the writing done and then you start doing radio interviews and you're like, I'm not really on that anymore, right? <laughs> Your publisher will kill you. You have to be on that for a long time. You have to care about this topic everywhere you go for two years. And so I thought to myself, if I'm going to spend two years on something, I've always approached writing as a way to learn, not a way to teach. So what do I need to learn? And I'll learn it through the process of writing it. And I knew right when we were at the tail end of the bread and wine process, I knew that my life was too fast and too full and too busy. I knew that I was skimming in my closest relationships. I knew that I wasn't living life to the full the way I wanted to. I was just living like life to the busy. And, um, and so I knew I needed to figure out, and I also had kind of tried to put the brakes on and it wasn't working. So I felt kind of out of control. And so I thought, I know how I need to, I know how my life needs to change. And I'm so thankful to have the kind of work where I get to discover this transformation process through the course of writing about it. So the book is really different than I thought it would be at the beginning. And it's different than the other books, but it, gave me the space and time to learn how to live a new way, and I'm so thankful for that. So, so not, not only did you write the book that you were willing to sit with and, and kind of center down into, but you're also kind of bearing out what Anne Lamott talks about when she picks a, a topic. She says, I write a book that I would like to come upon when I'm in a bookstore. 
If, if I'm in a bookstore and I see that and I think, oh, that's the book, mm-hmm. that's the book she wants to write. Yeah. It sounds like you, d- you did something similar because you could have used a book like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the kind of contracts I've always held with readers, so I'm going to keep writing, and the promise I make you with every new book, I promise you, I will be a better human and I'll be a better writer. And if I don't manage to do those two things from book to book, I haven't done my job. Better human, better writer. And so there have been some people that have said, like, this seems like such a departure. This seems so different. I say, well, you know, Cool Tangerines was 10 years ago. There better be a departure. If I'm still saying the same things I was 10 years ago, I'm not becoming a better human, and I'm not becoming a better writer. So I think part of the journey is you say, I'm going to trust that this is where life and God is leading me. And there may be some of us that want to walk this journey together. And it doesn't have to be all of us doing every book journey together, but I'm going to keep growing, and I'm going to trust that together we're going to grow together. No, that's a great point. If you were this, at, writing at the same level and about the same stuff for, the, for 10 years, I, I don't know. I, I think you'd have to evolve, mm-hmm. or um, I think you'd just kind of run out of stuff to say. I think so. I think, and, and that's what I want, and some of that, going back to Anne Lamont's point, that's what I want from other writers, I don't want them to keep giving me the same thing. This isn't like, I don't want a greatest hits album, right? I want them to keep making new discoveries about themselves and about the world. I want them to shift their beliefs and their practices, and I want to be a part of that journey. And so I expect that for myself as well. So let's keep, let's keep talking about writing for a while. Um, you said that um, even back when you were little, you were drawn to words and to storytelling and to stories, and that... I, I just love this image that you used in one of your books where you said that you understood the world through words the way musicians understand the world through notes or scientists understand the world through molecules. This, this goes way back for you. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you, I mean, did you do stuff back then? Is there a hidden novel of you <laughs> from age 10? That it's an we amazing haven't... novel I wrote when I was 10. No. Uh, but I, I would not say I've always been a writer, but reading has been my first language and my first way to process the world. My mom, so I was born in the 70s, and my mom um, apparently got a pack of flashcards at the health food store and taught me how to read when I was really little. And my mom's an avid reader. And so she started me reading, especially fantasy, um, when I was really, really little. little. She read to me, and then, and then I read, and I read the same books over and over again. Um, I could quote long passages. I was a weird little bookworm kid, but books were my way of understanding. I was never lonely if I had a book. I felt like I had been all over the world because I had been there in books, and so writing for me is just essentially trying to say thank you to the people who made my world so rich with the stories that they wrote. I just like, can I add to that big conversation? Um, but books continue to be my first love, reading them, not writing them. There's, there's a difference. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it, when, when you're writing them, you're not, you're not a fan of, I, I love no, this book. I lo- no, I've never, no. I love writing. I mm-hmm. really enjoy, um, there are some people I think who have like a, like I have an idea that I want to get out there. I'm a content creator. I've got, I've got thoughts that need to find their audience. I just like how words fit together. I like sentences. I like, I like typing. I like crafting. Like I, I genuinely like the craft of it. It's really exciting to me. Um, and I, it's, it's, it feels like play. 
which explains why you wanted to be an English major then in yeah. college, yeah. right? So who were some of the people that you read in college that took it up a notch for you? Well, I know this, uh, I'm focused at Westmont on <clears throat> post-1950s American male Jewish and Israeli Holocaust writers. It's pretty small. Yeah, yeah that's a... <laughs> Like we're, you we're, do. We're, yeah, like you do. Were they writing about food? <laughs> no. Not. No. 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 Okay. Um, so that was a little narrow. Um, but then I also did a lot. I spent um, my, a lot of my senior year um, on Edith Wharton and Henry James. One thing I love about Edith Wharton is you could basically, if you were an architect, you could build a construct of the home that she's writing about just from reading the book because she writes with such an architectural, visual mindset. And I like that. I mm-hmm. like the structure of that. So um, Wharton is, I'm crazy about her. Um, I read Hemingway's Movable Feast every year. It's my Anne Lamott's Traveling Mercies and Hemingway's Movable Feast. I read them both every year. Also the Little House on the Prairie books. Um, I read those every year, which I know is very strange but because no, they're no. for small children. But I read them first as a child. You don't child. have to tell them what Little House in the Prairie is about. We, we, they know. It's just an intelligent yes. group. Well, um, I didn't think you hadn't read them. I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that they're children's writing. I didn't want to make it sound like I was. But uh, those are some that I reread every year. And then I'm trying to think of what else in college was. Well, the other thing is I was a French major as well. So I read a lot of French novels, which, you know. I, I love. I love language, and I love seeing. I love seeing how the, the the words get put together differently in different languages, and so that's uh, a, a fun way to read in both languages for me. So, so writers writers live in a certain kind of tension, or or at least I do. Let me let me put it this way: where sometimes when you have an experience, or you go someplace, or you see something, um, it's almost as if it doesn't have validity as a cool experience unless you've written about it. And so just living life and having good experiences, at least for a lot of writers I know, that's not enough. They need to sit down and hang some language on it. Is that you? I don't think so. I think I'm a pretty, uh, when I'm not writing, I'm not writing. Like, uh, sometimes people will be, will be in the middle of an experience, and they'll be like, oh my gosh, don't write about this. And I'm like, I would, was not even thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Was not, when, I'm, when I'm in a writing project, then I'm very focused on it. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, my agent always teases me, and he says, you do a lot of living in, the, in, in between the writing, right? I'm a really, I'm slow. I don't have books come out one after another. And I like that. I like to do a lot of living. I'm not someone who can spend 12 hours a day, five days a week alone writing. I write in little chunks. Um, but I will say, um, I live better when I, I try to, and we talked about this earlier today, I try to completely articulate three moments of every day just what any three of anything, a snippet of a conversation, a meal, uh, a moment outside, a conver- anything, but I just try to completely articulate them, like maybe in five sentences. I call them glimpses. You put them in a journal and or I something? I email them to myself. It's very oh. high tech. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and that does two things. Number one, it means that when I do sit down to write about something, I have already captured all the details for that moment. I might not know what it's going to be about, but... I, I've remembered the details because I feel like those are the hard things to add in later. They always feel kind of forced. So I capture them exactly as I experienced and remembered them. 
then it also just makes me a more observant person. Mm-hmm. So It does hone your, yeah. your ability to say, this is going on. You become better at seeing things and, and better at articulating them. Some, uh, this last weekend, I led a writing workshop, and I had them write these three glimpses, three minutes at a time. And we observed that the first time you have people write them, they're like, I don't know what we're doing right now. And then the second time, they're like, I think I get it, but it's pretty hard. And the third time, they're like, I get it. Mm-hmm. And then we did some at the end of the time. You go like, I get it. So that idea of learning how to see and articulate just as an automatic practice, I think, is helpful. Are you ever tempted to do things where you say, oh, yeah, I'll go do that because that'd be cool to write about it? You know, I don't, but people say stuff to me like that all mm-hmm. the time. They're like, you should go to that and write about it. And, you should. and then I think to myself, I'm not a reporter. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I know a lot of reporters. Yeah, yeah. I think they're great. But I, I think I try to keep it. Hope so. We're, we're, not, we're not enemies of the people, you know. I mean, journalism is. <laughs> but I don't, I don't te- no, I don't plan experiences so I can write about them. I live very intentionally our normal life, and I trust that there's enough there. Sure. It, which I think is a more honest way to go. It, it, it would feel a little contrived, I would think, after a while. You just go do this because you know you're going to get a good story out of it. Well, and I think your kid's going to say something cute right? or whatever. Part of what I'm really committed to is the, the glory and beauty of everyday life. So if I write a book that's all about skydiving and bungee jumping, I've traveled fairly far away from my original purpose, Right. So I don't think I do my best writing when everything's a peak experience. I think I do my best writing when I'm making lunches and playing basketball in the driveway and connecting with our neighbors and with our church. I think that's my space, and the best stuff comes out of, of, in my writing when I'm deeply connected in that space. This, this is interesting because I just came across a, a George Saunders quote that, that says something similar. He says, it's easier said than done to accept who we really are and make art out of that. It means whatever you have is sufficient. So you're, you're talking about just doing the stuff in your house and in the driveway and in your church. And so that's, you're trying to make art out of that. Because I think if that's possible in my life, it's possible in all of our lives, Right. And that's my goal, is I'm not the star, our lives are the star. And so if I'm only able to write interesting things because I'm having really peak, extraordinary experiences, then I'm actually disconnecting myself from the people I most want to hold a hand out to, right? The point is there's beauty in basketball in the driveway. The point is there's beauty in your church elder meeting. The point is, you know, that, that there's richness and dimension to be found in all of our regular lives, not in just the special parts of our lives. Okay, so with that in mind, here's, here's, a, here's a line from one of your books where I, I want to see how this connects with what you just said. This is, this is from one of your books where you say, for me, writing is an act of rebellion and uprising against that part of me that needs to be responsible, helpful, adaptive. It may be the first thing that is entirely my own. So how is, how is writing an act of rebellion if what you're doing is talking about the stuff you're mired in every day. Well, I think, um, and it's, it's interesting to have, you know, uh, I know what section that's from, and I can hear, I, I know what I was talking about. So 
Um, Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way and several other great books on creativity, she talks a lot about the shadow artist. And the shadow artist is a person who, instead of making their own art, devotes themselves toward helping other people make their own art. Mm. And so for many years, I worked with really smart people getting their messages out. Um, I was producing large events and services, so I was working with very interesting preachers and pastors and worship leaders and musicians, and it was my job. I was the business, and they were the creativity. So I gave everything I had to make sure that it was really easy for them to be creative, for them to be brave, for them to be interesting, for them to articulate their vision for life. And it felt so very risky and scary for me to stop being the business part and start being the voice part. That was a really hard transition for me to make. Yeah, Yeah, big shift. So does that then, okay, so that connects probably then with another thing you wrote about writing, which is writing is when I let the hamster off the wheel and let it run loose for a while, wherever it wants, sniffing around. That's part of the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, um Creative work is not particularly efficient, and you can't mark, you know, it's not like laying bricks, like, look what I made, you know? It can be circuitous, and there are stops and starts, and and sometimes it ends up being a viable career, and for a lot of people it doesn't, and it doesn't mean it's not valuable to make. Um, But I think it takes a tremendous amount of bravery to say, this is worth making. So any person that makes anything, if you paint... If you write music, if you take pictures, there's a certain audacity to it that says, I believe this is worth making. And I had a really hard time um, making the transition from shadow artist, from support to artist, because I, it was so hard for me to believe um, that, that I could take all that time, that I could waste all that time writing, that I could, that I had the audacity to tell people what I thought about things. And one of the things that really helped me toward that end was realizing um, I have the right and I believe the responsibility to do this work that I've been invited to do. And every single person on earth except like my mom has the right to not read it and to hate it. Right? That's true. So... That puts some pressure on your mom, though. Right, but she's really nice, so she can, you know. But, you know, it's not, it's not like it's mandatory reading and, like, you're in prison and you don't get released until you read the book, right? Mm-hmm. And so it made, me feel, and it made me feel very tender toward other artists, right? Like, hey, I may not like what you made. I may absolutely hate this kind of music. But, man, I respect the fact that you got into a studio, And I respect the fact that you took a risk. My husband is a musician, and we made a rule in our house that we are always on the sides of the creators, not the critics, not the consumers. The creators, not the critics, not the consumers. So we we have a rule in our house that we don't ever speak negatively about what someone else made. We say, we put a lot of work into that. We say, um, I appreciate the soul that went into making that album. And we know that that's a, like, a really nice way of saying, like, I hate that music. Yeah, never going to listen to it again. Right. But we discipline ourselves to fall on the side of the creators, to appreciate that someone took a risk and made it, as opposed to, like, I just don't happen to like it. And, and I think every creative has to get, to, every creative person has to get to that place. Right, but, but you have also said that writing feels a little bit selfish, too. So you're on the, you're on the side of being... Uh, the creator, but then you feel guilty about it and, and that it's self-indulgent? I think initially I did. When I was making mm. the support, the, the move from being kind of that support person, it felt uh, how dare, I felt a lot of how dare you. 
why you and not someone else? What good is this going to do? That was coming from inside yeah. you, though. Yeah, definitely. I think the further along, as, as I've started to do it, I think some of it is you just settle into anything you've been doing for a while. So this isn't, uh, this is now my job. And I adore it. And I'm really thankful for it every day. But there's not so much drama about will I, won't I, can I, should I. It's my job, and it's what I do. But initially, it was very difficult for me to get the confidence and the permission internally to do it. And I think that's why sometimes when people ask for advice on this, I'm pretty harsh about it. Like, you just do it. You don't think about it, you just do it. You just get words on the page. You just keep... Because that's what I had to do. I had to just... It was so hard for me to get over the fear and and the kind of embarrassment and the drama of it. I spent a lot of time stuck in that place. And I, I know that sometimes when people have asked you for advice uh, about writing and why is it so hard, you've told them, actually, writing isn't hard. Sitting in the chair is hard. Yeah. So th- what's, what's, what's so hard about that? Well, some of it is I think it's... Um, you have to grapple with all of those things. I mean, Anne Lamott does such a good job of writing. You know, uh, you sit down in the chair, and then you remember, like, every person in your life you never called back. And you think maybe you just got a, tooth, a toothache. And you think, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden well, you have my hair look like parted on the right. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My yeah. husband, I, he came home one day, and I was like, do you ever just get that feeling where you're like, I have got to organize my jewelry right now? Mm-hmm. And he was like, number one, no. Number two, do you have a deadline? And I was like, I do. I do definitely have a deadline. Um, but I think, I think that gets easier over time, too. And I think one of the things I always remind myself is um, I think too often creative people depend on the myth of inspiration. Like, if I'm not feeling it, I shouldn't have to do it. And just run that through any other job, right? My cousin Amanda teaches kindergarten. Does she lay in her bed every morning going like, do I feel kindergarten-y today? Right? If she does not feel kindergarten-y and she doesn't go, she loses her job. So my job is to be a writer. And if you're a writer, whether or not you get paid for it, it's your job. It's the work that you do in the world. And so the more you can kind of short circuit all that drama about worth and audacity and do you have a right to do it, just just skip all the way around that, sit down in the chair and start making stuff. And the quicker you can get around that drama into the typing, the better. Yeah, because once you get around the drama, then you're probably okay for a while. Yeah. Then you're just doing work. Right. Yeah. I, I love this, this, another point that you've made about just doing the work and creating art or creating something where you've said, if you don't create something, the world will survive. The universe will survive if you don't. But you might not survive if you don't. Keep going with that. I, I, I love what I think this means. Well, I think, <laughs> I hope it's what you think it means. Um, you know, you will, you know, if you're a, a musician and you go on iTunes, right? You're not like, man, do they need my album? Man, are they limping along without me? No, clearly, there are plenty of bands making plenty of amazing things. You go into a bookstore, a lot of books, so many books. Um, and so it's not... Uh, do other people need me to make this? It's what will the process of making it bring out in my life? And I think that's where art making is a really interesting relationship between who you're making it for and what it's creating in you. So I'm a better human. I'm a better wife. I'm a better mother. I'm a better Christian. 
because I've been writing for 10 years. Even if not one person ever had ever bought a book, the process transformed me. It made me look at life differently. It made me learn new skills. It made me take risks. It made me get comfortable with criticism and with being misunderstood. It made me pay attention to parts of my life that I would have preferred to leave hidden. The journey of being a writer has improved my life 10,000 ways before it ever got in the hands of anyone else. And I think that's part of why making art is really valuable. So it, 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 you've also said not only is it valuable, it's a healing, it, it's a, a healing balm in the universe to create art, and yet we'll do everything we can to avoid doing it. What's that about? I think the older I get, the less time it takes okay. me okay. to get... I, be, you know, I mean, I was going to say, you know, it's like running. I don't know that. I've heard that. <laughs> You've heard. You've heard that it's I like totally running. I <laughs> totally don't know that it's like running. It's not like that for me. But people who run say that, um, <laughs> that you get to a point where you know how good you're going to feel once you get out there, that it's easier and easier to get yourself out the door because you know about how good you're going to feel. I don't know that feeling, but I know it in writing. I know that when I'm stuck, when I feel unclear, when I feel all kind of tangled up inside, I know one of the quickest ways to unravel what's kind of obscuring things is just to start typing. And so, so now it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the tools in my toolbox for how to get through a tricky patch. And it's as much for me as for anyone. Okay, so let, let, let's turn this a little bit. Well, let's talk about social media. Okay. You've heard of it? I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah, I think you are. So it's a different kind of writing, isn't it? I mean, what you write on your, on your website, the, the, what you tweet, what you blog, that's a different, or is it? Is, is it a different kind of writing? Is it a different kind of thinking? Oh, I think it's very different. Um, I, th- I think about them in entirely different ways. Um, and I would say most writers... Uh, excel in one format and then adapt to be okay at the other formats. Uh, I have some friends who are just killer bloggers. It's what they do. They're really good at it. It's a very particular skill. Mm-hmm. It's not my strength. Um, I, I'm a book person. It's what I like to read, it's, and it's what I like to write. I, I like having a really long time to make something. And I like to go on a whole journey. I like to bring themes. All I, I'm not done after 800 words. Um, I, I really like that whole experience. And then I, what I also like is I like thinking of the reader um, holding the book and, and, and going on this journey with me, and we get to know each other along the way, which I think is really different. Uh, I think blogs a lot of times come a little bit, um, they're, they're less grounded in context sometimes. And then I think social media is a whole animal unto itself. And for me, I like the long form, and I like social media more than I like the blog middle thing. What It seems to me that uh, um, the social media piece lacks... And, and this is part of the definition of, of why it's important, is that it, it, it lacks sort of the reflective nature to kind of think before you, before you tweet. Um, and, and that's, I think there are a lot of people who wish they would have thought a little before they, yeah. before they sent something out. Well, I, I feel like I've, I really enjoy social media, and I've put a fair amount of effort into trying to figure out my way of approaching it. And um, I think that for me, the thing I've learned the hard way is there's not as much possibility for context and nuance 
Right, but but writing and reading is all about context totally. and nuance. And so you have to write with the assumption that you're you cannot leave a lot of ambiguity for context or nuance. You have to you have to button up the edges um, pretty clearly uh, because it's so easy easy to be misunderstood. So if you're going to spend three hundred pages with me. On page 250, I can say some, some stuff that might surprise you, but you see it in the context of this journey that we've been on. Mm-hmm. But if you're just scrolling through, we don't know anything about each other. If I'm a little bit vague about something, if, it, if I leave too many uh, windows open in what I've written, you could go anywhere with that. And I think, so I think you have to assume people don't have context and there's no space for nuance, and I have to communicate knowing that. That's a different kind of communicating. It is. It's very different. So as, as much as you've been involved with social media and as much as you've written, a lot of what you write about has to do with uh, family and friends and experiences. You've, you've kind of made yourself a public person. Some of, your, some of the stuff you've struggled with, um, uh, talking about things that your kids have done. Um, and, and I'm just thinking, has, how, how has that worked out? to live that publicly. One of the things that um, that prepared me well for right. this is I'm a pastor's kid. So Oh, okay. Before I was telling <laughs> No, no, that was a No, that was legitimate. I I thought that actually says a lot. Um before I was telling large groups of people stories about my childhood, my dad was telling large groups of people stories about my childhood. Got it. So, I so I don't have this really deep sense of privacy anyway. I think I grew hmm. up in an environment where people knew stories about me, people knew my name, people could sometimes, you know, say hello to me at the grocery store and I didn't know them, but they knew, you know. So that, uh, I'm used to that side of it. And I would say the interesting thing about public life and social media is none of us have done it very long. You know, I mean, there are hundreds of years of evidence for how to be a great novelist, right? This has been happening. But we don't know how a novelist or an essay writer or a memoirist from 100 years ago would have handled their Instagram. We just don't know. And so we're all kind of making it up as we go. And um, I would say I'm, I'm learning as I go, and I'm figuring out the hard way what feels right to me and what doesn't. And I err, uh, you know... In some ways, I share so much about my life, but I share exactly what I'm comfortable sharing in the timing that I feel comfortable sharing it, and and that's an important thing. So you've got some boundaries that you stick Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I don't. I I don't feel, and I don't feel pressured. Like uh, sometimes someone will say, like, "We deserve to know." I go, "What?" <laughs> Do I want a cabinet position? No. That <laughs> you don't deserve. Like. Mm-hmm. Um, I get to reveal the glimpses of our life in a way and, a, and, and in a t- on a timeline that feels right for our family. And, and I, I don't have to, this isn't a, I don't have to like check in every, you're not my parole officer. This mm-hmm. isn't like I need to see you every X amount of hours, you know? And so, I, but I think it, you have to figure it out as you go. Because writers can be that demanding to, to feel like parole officers. I mean, readers can be that way, where, where they're saying, look, we haven't heard about yeah. what's going on. They're, they can be kind of weird. Well, um, and I think I, I try to interpret that as, you know, thank you for being interested. I'm really thankful that you're interested in it. Um, but I think it's also, for me, I am not a social media personality. It's not what I do. I'm a book writer. 
but do you try out chapters or ideas with, with crowds and, and see what they say? No, but I will say I, um, I'm conscious of trying to lead people via social media in the same way that I'm trying to lead them through books. So a lot of my social media is about um, choosing to be home, choosing silence, choosing nature, because those are things that I'm learning are valuable for my life, and I want to demonstrate that on my social media. Okay. You've got a line in one of your books that I just thought was sort of this existential statement about your place here. And, and here's, here's what you said. Doing the hard work of writing makes me feel like I'm paying my rent on a cosmic level. That almost feels like an obligation, is it? Well, you know, it, it feels to me like it feels to me like what you say when you're 30, right? Um, that's when you said that. Yeah. Okay. Um, which, and that that's fair. That's how that's writing how you is. Felt. Writing and is a it's a time capsule. Um, when I was 30, I wanted to know: Am I doing something that matters? Am I making a difference? I hear that now, and I go: Your rent is paid because God made you, because you're a human, because you live on this worth, earth with the same worthiness and love of any. You know, we're not paying rent here. You know, but I think. One of the fascinating things about writing is you've got time capsules of all the things you needed to grow through along the way. And I think that's one of them. Yeah, and that's how you felt at the time. Yeah. You needed to, you needed to pay the rent. I needed to know that I was paying the rent. Yeah. And now I know we're not paying rent, yeah. right? That, we're that, house guests, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But that just sounded like that, that takes all the fun out of it mm-hmm. when you're thinking about that. I'm glad you don't feel that way anymore. <laughs> so... So what about advice? Do you, I, I know you do writing workshops. I know you speak all over the world. Um, and people come up to you and say, oh, I think I want to be a writer. What do you tell them? Uh, I tell them, uh, start noticing three things every day and write it down completely in three to five sentences. Give us the three things one more time. Do, us the, glim- do the glimpses. Um, and so those are the, like, write down three little glimpses. Right, so something you hear. It can be anything. They can be all okay. things you hear. They don't have to, but just notice three things in the course of your day Got it. and write them down in words with all of the details. So that's number one. Do your glimpses. Um, number two, share your work. Um, a lot oh, hold of people, up. What does that mean? With, with, with whom? Well, at the beginning with everyone. With anyone, I mean. With some people, a lot of times people have been writing for years and years and years and no one's ever seen it. And what I think about that is um, when they start working with an editor, that's going to be very painful. So you and I know that editors are not shy about making huge changes in your work, and they, they make it better. We need editors so, so desperately. But a lot of times, so a lot of times people write for so many years and no one ever sees it, and then an editor really breaks their heart, and then public feedback just unravels them. And editing and public feedback are a part of the writing life. So the sooner you can get comfortable with that, the better. Family members, friends, anybody? Another writer friend would be great. And it doesn't have to be in person. It could be someone, you know, you email each other things back and forth. But it's one thing, one reason I think a blog is a really good way to start is because you, you force yourself to finish. 
and you start getting feedback immediately. You know, you write, let's say you write, you post once a week, and in the first six weeks, you try out six of your topics that you think are your, your kind of thing. You'll know after six weeks which one you liked writing the most, which people connected with the most. So to start to get feedback along the way, the writing life is so heavily influenced by writing, by editing and by feedback, and you need to get comfortable with that right away. And then the hmm. third thing I always tell people, and we talked about this earlier, is read voraciously. I, am, um, I have a really hard time when writers come to me and they tell me that they're, all they want to be in the entire world is a writer, but they don't have time to read. I don't think you can do great writing if you're not reading voraciously. And so... Anything? Read anything? Blogs or cereal boxes? Read what you want to write. So if you want to be a blogger... Read what you want to write? Yeah. Is that what you said? That's a great advice. If if you want to write blogs, read a ton of blogs because whatever you read is going to come out in your writing in a pretty clear way. So... um, but, but so on one hand, read what you want to write. And on the other hand, read anything in any genre at all, as long as it's better than your current level of writing, because it will make you better. And especially, so when I'm not in a writing season, like I'm not in a writing season right now, it's just lovely. Um, I am reading all kinds of stuff, uh, good stuff, bad stuff, trashy stuff. I, I went real deep into a 80s uh New York detective series. It's just terribly written. It's all full of cliches, and I just am super into it. Um, but I can do that when I'm not writing, because I just love to read. And then when I'm, when I'm writing, I'm really strict about reading a quality of language that I aspire to, that, that would lift my skill set, mm-hmm. because it shows. So if, if all you're ever reading is social media and short blogs you probably won't do a great job of writing long-form projects because it's not the way your brain is calibrated. So if you want to move into book writing, what you should be reading most of is long-form books, long-form essays. So I think what we put in, it shows a lot of times more than we think. I think it does. At least it does in my writing. Yeah. All right, so we're going to need to uh, wrap this up, but I've got something from... One of your books that I would love to have... This is from Cold Tangerines. Uh, this paragraph from, uh, from that book, and you want to tell us what sure. was behind that? Sure. So I'll, I'll read you this in just a second, kind of to close our time together. But um, again, so much about Cold Tangerines, my, the first book I wrote, so much of it was about permission as an artist. Do we, do we get to do this? Are you allowed to do this? Um, and, 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 and what are the stakes and what does it cost? And, um, there was a song during that time that captured me so deeply. And it was a song called Needle and Thread, um, by a band called Sleeping at Last. And it just captured something so deeply in me. I just loved it. And it was actually the song that was playing the moment that our son Henry was born. So it was a song that we loved, and then Aaron put it on this playlist, and then we were in you know, the middle of the night in this dark hospital in Michigan, and this song comes on. It came on again when we were driving home from the hospital for the first time. So now we have like such, such super deep emotional connection to this piece of music. And then we go to a Sleeping at Last show, 
And um, we had emailed with them because I had to get permission to write about their song, right? So we'd emailed them a little bit, and they played at Calvin College in a room, you know, not much bigger than this, with an eight-piece string section in the in the seminary chapel. And um, for the encore, they played this song, Needle and Thread, and they dedicated it to Henry, my son. And I cried like I was at a crime scene, like a hysterical person. And I remember asking my husband, like, do you think people know they're talking about us? Do you think they... He was like, I'm I'm pretty sure they know. Yeah, now Uh, they do. (laughs) You're going to need an IV from all the fluids you've just lost. Um, So... So essentially, I wrote this essay to Ryan, who has since become a close friend. So Ryan from Sleeping at Last, I wrote a letter to him in this essay saying, um, thanks for making things, because the thing you made has become the soundtrack for our one of the most important experiences of our life. And so if I could meet you, what I would say to you is thank you and keep going, because the world needs more great art, more great songs, more great paintings. And, you know, like anything you write, you're writing to somebody else, you're also writing to yourself. Um, and so Cool Tangerines largely is about permission. Is it okay to live a creative life? Do I have permission, and whose do I need in order to do that? And so this is the end of an essay that I wrote to Ryan for thanking him for writing this song, but to all of us who yearn to make things and wonder Um, if we have the permission. So, to all the secret writers, late-night painters, would-be singers, lapsed and scared artists of every stripe, dig out your paintbrush or your flute or your dancing shoes, pull out your camera or your computer or your pottery wheel. Today, tonight, after the kids are in bed or when your homework is done or instead of one more video game or magazine, create something anything. Pick up a needle and thread and stitch together something particular and honest and beautiful because we need it. I need it. Thank you and keep going. Shauna Nequist, thank you so much for being with us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.